Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 13. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Before we read chapter 13 of Genesis, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, we read in the scriptures, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so, Father, we, your people, sit here under your word. We seek, Father, that you would speak to each and every one of us, Father, individually and as a gathering of your people. We pray, Father, that we would be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be made wise, that we would be made obedient. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 13, starting from verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Memre, which are at Hebron, And there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. I've had this verse. I'm going to read another verse of scripture to you in just a second. I've had it in front of me the whole time I prepared this message because there's something that we have to remember as we read in Genesis about the things that Lot does. Second Peter chapter two, verses seven to eight read. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
etc., etc. We won't read any further than that, but just notice it's said twice. Lot was righteous. Lot was considered righteous by faith. So as we speak of Lot, we're going to say things like Lot makes unwise choices. Lot sins. Lot brings about his own downfall. The descendants of Lot are not going to be the promised people. They're um, going to be accursed in many ways. Yet remember this. Lot was counted righteous. He must therefore have shared in the faith of Abram. What Abram had told him of the living God, he had believed. What Abram had communicated to him of the promises of God, he had believed. That is the only way that anyone can be counted righteous according to God. No one is righteous by any other means. So what Lot is going to become to us is an example of a believer who is, even though he's a believer, struggling in terms of sanctification, struggling in terms of wisdom, struggling in terms of growing in godliness. That's the man that Lot is, counted as righteous, considered to be a preacher of righteousness, and yet he himself is not an example of wisdom. He's not a man that we are to model our lives upon. We're picking up immediately after Abram has come out of Egypt. Remember in Egypt, Abram stumbles, puts his uh, marriage on the line, lets Pharaoh take his wife into the harem. And he's basically kicked out of there. He's given wealth and told, get out, go. You're a troublemaker. You, You came here, you told us a lie, get out. So off they go. Abram goes up from Egypt and Lot is with him. Now, the relationship of Abram to Lot, if you don't remember, Lot is Abram's nephew and probably had a relationship very much with his uncle, like that of father and son. Lot's father, Abram's brother, died when Lot was young, back before Abram first entered the promised land. Abram's father had also died. It's very easy to imagine that the main male influence in the life of Lot had to this point been Abram. So they probably had a very strong, very close relationship. And the text seems to indicate that there in the back of Abram's mind was the thought, if I don't have a child of my own, well, at least I've got Lot. If I don't have one of my own to pass things on to, well, at least I've got Lot. Abram's a man of faith. God has promised him seed, offspring. Yet, you know, is, is, is it unusual for people like you and I to think in our minds, well, if God doesn't do this, I suppose I could do that. If God doesn't make this easy, I I mean, if God doesn't make this happen, I suppose I could take this as an alternative plan. We all have these little contingencies in our lives that run in the back of our minds. And I, I think that the text is expecting us to consider that Lot was Abram's contingency plan. Lot was to be the inheritor of all that Abram had. Looking at verse two, we see that Abram is very rich in silver and in gold. And he journeys back, basically retracing his steps back to the place he had been when he first entered Canaan and there he first called upon the name of the Lord. 
Verse 4, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He returned to worship. This is the promised land. This is where he ought to be. He had strayed from the promised land. Down in Egypt, he had sinned. He had tried to help God out. He had tried to step in and take control of providence. And now, in obedience, he returns to the place where he was, to the place where he made an altar at the first, and there he worships. There he prays. My friends, this is repentance. This is sort of a geographical picture of repentance. When a believer sins, you know, people say you can't go back. Well, in a way, you always can go back. C.S. Lewis compared it to mathematics. If you, if you get a big, long equation wrong, what do you have to do? Work your way back through every single step until you get to the step where the mistake first appeared. And at the mistake that first appeared, then you start from that point on to work it out correctly. Abram got it wrong. Abram repents. The geographical image of this repentance is that he returns to the place where he had worshipped, where God had spoken to him. And Lot, looking at verse 5, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife, family strife, between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time... The Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. In a tribal time, tribal relationships were very important. Abram does not want Lot to be his enemy under no circumstances. Why? Because if there's going to be warfare between tribes, Abram wants to know that he can rely upon Lot as an ally. Strife between relatives is a lot of trouble and not something that is wanted. Now, here I want to speak about something. We'll see as we move through Abram's life that at various times, Abram consciously, deliberately submits. He consciously, deliberately submits If you look at the way that he seeks to solve this problem, it's a very submissive way. He's the senior man. He's the elder man. As I said, he's probably in something that resembles a father-son relationship to Lot. Yet what does he do? How does he solve his problem? He could have by rights said, this is not working out and you and I can't be arguing. Here is what I want you to do. I want you to take your herds and your stuff and I want you to go and put some distance between you and me. You go that way. Off you go. He could have made it an order. He was within his rights to make it an order, to basically act as the boss man. But he submits. Now, he hands the choice over to Lot. And he, he, he does this in a, in a wise and a gentle way, basically saying, it's not good that we have arguments and strife. I give you the choice. Here we stand in the land that God has promised. You make your choice. 
The land is before you. What do you want? What do you desire? Where would you like to go? I will separate from you. He submits. He hands the choice over to Lot. And I would suggest to you that in handing the choice to Lot, he was actually in faith handing the choice to God. Think about the contrast between what he's doing here and what he did down in Egypt. He went to Egypt. He knew that Egypt was an idolatrous land. He knew that those who have power in Egypt were likely to take any woman they desired to wife. And so he came up with a scheme, a plan. He plotted, as it were. He decided that he needed to just help God out to make sure that he was safe so that the promises of God could be fulfilled. He made a plot. Well, now he's got another problem. And this time, instead of deciding to just uh, try and control the circumstances, instead of trying to uh, run the show, he did everything that he could to take a step down and allow God to run the show. And one of the ways he did that was by allowing Lot to be the one who takes the choice. He surrendered his right of claiming and he gave the right of choosing to Lot. What was it when Abram took Isaac to the mountain to offer him as a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering? It was an act of submission. God gave a commandment. Abram submitted. He didn't even argue. There's a really interesting little phrase, and when we, the Lord willing, get there, I'll probably be making much of it. But basically, it basically says when it comes time for Abram to sacrifice Isaac, it basically says, your only begotten son, whom you love. Now, we all know there was another one running around, wasn't there? I think his name was Issachar. No, not Issachar. I always get this wrong. Don't worry. There was a half-brother by Hagar. The name? Anyway, there was a half-brother by Hagar. Hagar, sorry, I've got that wrong. Ishmael, thank you. I always mix up Ishmael and Issachar in my mind. Ishmael. There was Ishmael. He was born before Isaac. Yet when God spoke to Abram at that time, he said, take your only begotten son, the one whom you love. The same sort of description of Jesus. My only begotten son with whom I am well pleased. And Abram submitted. Sometimes, my friends, faith requires that we simply submit to the providence of God. That we simply submit to that which is coming. That we let God, as it were, plot our course. Abram here submits and lets God plot his course. Lot lifts up his eyes and looks to what he considers to be the best land around about and says, I'll have that to myself. Now, I'm sort of going to hurry to the end of the chapter and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to try and draw some more out of those, these few verses. He hurries off. The Jordan Valley, fertile, well-watered, beautiful, I'll have it. The next thing that happens is God then appears to Abram and speaks to Abram. You see, this is why I consider that in Abram's mind, Lot was a potential inheritor. 
God sends Lot, I mean, Abram sends Lot away, as it were, allows Lot to go his merry way. And the next thing you know, God appears to Abram and says to Abram, your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth. You will not be able to count them. Abram's given up on something. He's submitted here. He's given up on the idea that Lot was going to be the one who inherits the promises. He's given up on his plan. And God appears to Abram and affirms to him that this was the right thing, that this was the thing to do. This painful party, this nephew who was as to him in many ways a son, off he goes and God appears to Abram and assures him that he has done the right thing. This submission was what God was seeking all along. The submission of faith, the willing to surrender to the providence of God, the willing to surrender to the guidance and the leadership of God. And so we see that Lot moves to a place called Sodom. And I'm sure you all know the Bible well enough to know that at this moment, if we were doing this with musical accompaniment, some very dark and deep tones would be coming out of whatever was playing at this moment. He moves to Sodom. And just to make sure, Moses says, and you need to know this, the men of Sodom, they were great sinners. They're wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Let the dark music swell for a moment. Then let it settle back down because once again we're back with Abram. Abram has this appearance of God to him. God reassures him in the promises and Abram settles in the land of which, the, of which God had promised him and Abram builds another altar. By the oaks of Memre, which are at Hebron, there he builds an altar to the Lord. It's a blessed separation. So here's the first thought that I want to work with. Separation. There are many in this world today who will tell us that the best thing is always lockstep unity. Whatever you do, don't separate, don't split, don't divide off, fit in, form a uniform group, lockstep unity. And there are many who would tell you that the way that you get it is by sacrificing higher principles until you get to the lowest possible common denominator that everyone can agree with. That's not scriptural. That's not the way God wants things done. God wants us to find unity in seeking his will. He wants us to find unity in true faith. Our unity should be built on mutual submission to the word of God, mutual submission to the doctrines that set us apart in the world as Christians, mutual submission to the truth of God's word. And the things in which we disagree, well, they should be sort of the minor things or the the less important things. They're important. They're in God's word. It's important how you interpret things. I'm not saying that it's not, but... You know, you know, I'm a millennialist and I can worship here very happily with premillennialists. And I hope that you as premillennialists can worship very happily here with me teaching. And I'm an millennialist. We can we can work together. We believe that Jesus is Lord, the son of God. We believe 
all of the major and most important doctrines were hand in hand, were in lockstep. But Abram separates from Lot. In Genesis chapter 33, Jacob separates from his brother Esau. Jacob returns with his wives to the promised land. He returns to Canaan. And um, Esau comes to meet him and says, well, I'll, I'll leave some men with you, some warriors, and you can come with me and you can march with me and we'll all go to our place and uh, we'll be there together. We'll form a very big, strong community. And Jacob finds a peaceful way to say, oh, look, I've, I've got, you know, I've got ewes that are very heavy with lambs and I've got lambs that have only been born for a day or two and they can't be moved in a hurry. And, you know, look, you, you guys go off your way and I'll come along at my own pace. And if you read carefully, you realise that he never, ever goes to where Esau was. He goes right back to where Abram had been previously in the land of Canaan. He separated himself. Abram separates. My friends, sometimes we're called to separate. We're called to separate over vital issues of the faith. We're called to separate over sins. We're called to be holy. The, the root meaning of the word holy means to be set apart or cut off from. It means to be divided away from. It means to be set, af- set aside for the use of God. Sometimes we're called to separation. I want us now to look particularly at Genesis 13.10 in our text this morning. There we see, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. My friends, at this point in time, this is not a part of Canaan. Verse 12 12 tells us Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Lot had not settled in the land of Canaan. What was the promised land? The land of Canaan. Lot lifted up his eyes. Now, there's there's a whole lot of um, there's a whole lot of linguistic cues here. There's a whole lot of cues, word cues. We, as the people of God, are supposed to have our minds tuned to these things. We're supposed to be able to see these things and go, "Oh dear, oh my, oh goodness, what's happening." Some of them are very obvious. What's it like? It's like the garden of the Lord. What does that tell us? What's that speaking of? Remember earlier in the book of Genesis, the Lord planted a garden and there he set the man. What happened in the garden? Didn't the snake come into the garden? And wasn't man cast out of the garden? He was Driven, the word is used, driven out of the garden, get out, go. You cannot dwell here any longer. And what did Lot do at verse 10? Lot lifted up his eyes. How did he fall into temptation? You know, the devil came and said, you know, did God really say you can't eat that fruit? And they had a bit of a conversation and we're told that Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was suitable or good for eating. Eve looked. Lot lifted up his eyes. 
They're standing basically on a mountain range in the land of Canaan. According to the um, commentators, it's probably around about two and a half thousand feet high. Well over a thousand metres. So the view from such a prominent place is good. You can see a lot of things. And from that high point, he could see out of the promised land. He could see down, as it were, into the valley. He lifted up his eyes and he looked for the shortcut to the Garden of Eden. This is the way I want to put this. What's the promise in the book of Revelation? When you get to the end, the last few chapters, what's the promise? Where are we as the people of God bound for? Heaven. But what is heaven? What does, what does the book of Revelation tell us about heaven when we speak of heaven? You know, is it, is it clouds floating in the sky? Or does it speak of a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth and resurrected people with real bodies living on the new earth under the new heavens? And the descriptions in the final closing chapters of Genesis, what are they called to mind? There's a tree of life in the new, heaven, new heavens and the new earth. There's a tree of life at the new earth. There's a river flowing from the temple in the midst of the new earth. It's a garden. It's the return to, if you want to put it this way, the garden, but it's such a greater garden. It's even more blessed than the first garden. You know... I've no great desire to be a spirit floating in the clouds. I really don't. That's not the way God made me. If, if your imagination, when you think of heaven, points you to clouds and being a bodiless spirit floating through the clouds, well, I don't know how you could find that possibly attractive. But the thought that I could be perfected in my humanity, healthy, not tempted by sin, Everything that God ever intended me to be upon a perfected earth, living in a perfected garden that is so much greater than the garden that Adam and Eve ever knew, rejoicing in the goodness of God, able to feast from the tree of life, in the presence of our Lord whose face we get to see, is that starting to sound a little attractive? Could you imagine living that life? Being strong, vibrant, healthy, in a beautiful place, blessed in the presence of God? Lot looks from the promised land down into the valley and says there's a shortcut to the garden. There's a shortcut to happiness. There's a shortcut to everything that I dream of. It's right there, just in front of me. I've only got to go down and take it. I can have it. My friends, don't trust people who promise you a shortcut to, the he to heaven. Don't trust people who promise you a shortcut to the Garden of Eden. They're always liars. They're always deluded. They're always deceived. And they're always deceivers. There's only one way back to the garden. There's only one way for us to get back into paradise and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And what did Jesus promise us concerning life upon this earth? What are we to expect? What kind of life are we to expect to be called to live? Take up your cross and follow me. The world hated me. The world will hate you. Etc. Etc. They will persecute you just as they persecuted me. They will think that when they flog you, they're doing God a service. They will spit on you for my name's sake. Did Jesus say there was a shortcut to the garden? No, he did not. Jesus said that the way to the garden is through me and that you live the life that I give you to live and you live it in faithful obedience and do not expect to have everything go your way in this world. I'm leaving you in the battlefield. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm leaving you in the power of the Holy Spirit. My Father and I, by the power of the Spirit, will come and dwell with you. We will never neglect you nor forsake you. I am the good shepherd. You will get there. Do not fear. But in the meantime, fight the good fight. There's no shortcut down to the Garden of Eden. And so we see that Lot, though he's counted as faithful, Though the scripture says that he's righteous and a preacher of righteousness, he's not wise. I could think of another one, Solomon. I mean, Solomon wrote one of the Psalms. Solomon was accounted as the wisest man upon the face of the earth. Solomon had face-to-face meetings with God. But we also know when we read the narrative in scripture of what happened with Solomon, that in many ways he was not wise. He offered sacrifices to idols. He took foreign wives. His lust got the better of him. Lot lifted up his eyes and Lot looked at the world. He looked away from the promises. He looked for the easy ride. He looked for paradise, as it were, just just right now, right here. We've got a word for that kind of approach. We call it utopia, which literally means nowhere. A place that does not exist. Utopia. When we speak of utopian ideologies, we're speaking of people whose political ideology is, if only you give me all the power to do everything that I want to do, everybody will be happy because we'll have a wonderful place to live on this earth and nothing will ever go wrong because my ideology is so perfect. And we call those people utopians. Let's have a look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord, Yahweh, speaks to Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. You see, you are allowed to lift up your eyes. Lot lifted up his eyes and looked away from the promises. But Abram is the man with whom God is going to make a covenant. Abram is the man through whom God is going to bring forth the seed. Abram is the one upon whom God has set his love. When God says to such men, lift up your eyes, these men look not away from the promises, but towards them. God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Guess what? He's just looked over the Jordan Valley and the city of Sodom and where Lot had gone to. 
Lot had said, I will take the most beautiful, fertile place that can be seen. I'll have that for myself. And God says to Abram, that place where Lot has gone, everything you can see, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Lot lifts up his eyes in his own power and all he can see is the world and all that the world has to offer. I'm sure we've all known people who've grown up in the church community, in the Christian community, like that. They've been raised by believing parents. They've been raised under the sound of the gospel. But their eyes are always looking, as it were, out the church window. They want to see what's going on out there. To them, life outside of the church looks like so much fun and it's so much more attractive and so much easier. Why can't we just have what we want and have it right now? Why can't we just have it all? Why does God care so much about sin and stuff? I just want these things. Why can't I have them? We've all seen them. They lift up their eyes and they look away. From the promises. But Abram, in the power of God, lifts up his eyes and he looks towards the promises. And God speaks to him All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now, we should remember. Actually, let's look at this. Go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Abram saw the land that God promised, but Abram saw more. He saw more than just the land of Canaan. Don't ever forget that. Hebrews 11 at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram looked at Canaan. Abram saw the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan, there would have at that time been many cities. But we've just read that Abram saw another city. He saw more than just the land of Canaan. God said to him, look at the land of Canaan. And then he enabled him to see, as it were, more, deeper, further. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. See that? This is speaking of Abram. I'm a stranger in an exile on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. According to God's commandment, Abram lifted up his eyes. He looked around Canaan. He saw the land of Canaan. And Abram believed 
not just that his own direct descendants would inherit this land, but that there was more than this land. We're not just getting a bit of real estate in a place called Canaan here, says Abram, thinks Abram, believes Abram. We're getting eternal life and a city which is built by God, a heavenly city, a city prepared for me by God. Abram saw more than just the land of Canaan. Always remember that. Turn back into Genesis chapter 13. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Turn to now, just keep a finger in Genesis chapter 13, but turn now to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It's speaking of God. And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. The question is, who knows these things? Who can measure these things? Who knows these things? Abram's offspring were to be as the dust of the earth. God knows. God has a plan. God has an elect people. The dust of the earth are known to God. Back to Genesis chapter 13. How could it be that Abram's offspring cannot be counted? How could it be that Abram's offspring cannot be counted? Now, there have been born very many Jews the offspring of Abram, very many Jews throughout history. But I would suggest to you that if we got together a statistician, a computer program, an, archaeolo- an archaeologist, you know, if we, if, we, if we started to work things out, we could probably come up with a pretty accurate number as to how many Jews have been born in the world. We could probably get reasonably close. But Abram has more than that, doesn't he? We, by faith, What are we counted as? The offspring of Abram. For we share in the faith of Abram. We see more than just this world. We see a heavenly world before us. We see the new heavens and the new earth. We see the city that is made by God himself. Descending from the clouds is the picture we're given in the book of Revelation. We share in Abram's faith. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has made explicit to us. That which Abram believed from afar and we're counted as the offspring of Abram. When you start trying to work out how many people have been believers, how many people have believed the gospel, well, then you start to come to the conclusion that actually I can't really count this. This is beyond counting. God knows. God has a number. God most certainly has a number. God can enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. But we can't. We are considered to be by faith the offspring of Abram. When we come here, what's happening here, by the way? What's happening? 
If you look back at chapter 12, in the first paragraph of chapter 12, it's probably set out as a paragraph in your Bibles. Abram gets promises. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonours you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now he gets more promises. They're actually the same promises, but more details concerning the same promises. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Promises, promises. Week by week, we come to church. Week by week, we sit ourselves under the preaching of the word of God. We take the communion meal. What are all these things? In a way, they're repetitions. If, if, if you want to be a preacher who preaches week by week, I'll tell you something. I've learnt this myself. You've basically got to be satisfied with repeating yourself again and again and again because there is only one saviour. There is only one truth. There is only one gospel. But the thing is, as you repeat yourself again and again and again, the people of God are being built up. The people of God are being strengthened and encouraged. The people of God are feeding upon the promises. There's only one pure food. There's only one manna from heaven, as it were. That's what we feast on again and again and again. Abram is feasting on the promises of God again and again and again. The gospel is being preached to him over and over and over. And yes, the gospel Remember, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Abraham saw what was coming. He saw the cross from the distance of time. He saw salvation coming and he rejoiced in it. Sometimes repetition is the secret of success. The value of building little by little by little. It's kind of forgotten in our day and age. Everything comes to us so quickly. We've got fast food, fast computers. If a smart kid goes to school, he gets put on an accelerated learning program. And everything's supposed to happen quickly. But the people who accomplish the most in the world, the people who accomplish the most in their lives... Very rarely does it come in an instant. You know, I, I, I heard a musician being, um, being interviewed. He, he, he'd written a hit song. It had gone number one all over the world. Now, he was a bit wiser than most musicians because the interviewer said to him, what's it like to be an overnight success? Yesterday, no one had heard of you. Today, you're number one everywhere. And he said, I want you to know it's taken me 10 years to become an overnight success. I have, I have written and recorded 10 albums that went nowhere. It's taken me 10 years of hard work till finally I've written a song that people identify with. How long does it take to become an overnight success? I like, I like what he was saying there. I like the way he put it. It might be one instant where people notice your success. 
That might be the case. But little by little by little, building, 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 one brick upon another, as it were, line by line, jot by jot, tittle by tittle, is the way the scripture puts it. Little by little. Accumulation. Worked for over the years. Our sanctification, our growth into Christ-likeness, it's happening little by little by little. Little by little by little. Anyone who's been a Christian here for any number of years, we can all say, you know what, I'm not the man I used to be. I'm not the woman I used to be. You go back 15, 20 years ago, I feel, I think I'm looking at a little child as I remember some of the thoughts I had, some of the things I did. But little by little by little, God has changed me. I know I'm not yet what I'm supposed to be. But I know that God has made me what I am here today. Little by little by little. The repetition of the promises, the repetition of the gospel, the repetition of hearing the word of God. My friends, we do the same here every week. If I ever bring you any, any different gospel, it's not the true gospel. There is no, no new true gospel. There is no new true gospel. There's only the gospel that has been saving since God has started speaking to mankind. And we need to hear it again and again and again. And we need to read scripture seeking the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Little by little by little, we get built up in the word of God. My friends, when you've stumbled and when you've gone down into Egypt and there you've compromised and there you've made your foolish mistakes, as we all do from time to time, and when people whom you once thought were trustworthy part from you, go their own way, go seeking the blessings of this world, their eyes are lifted up and they look to the things of this world and off they go. My friends, we have to just keep coming back to the promises of God. We just have to keep coming back to calling upon the name of the Lord. We just have to keep submitting to the word of God. That's what it takes. That's what's required in our Christian lives. We're not running a 100-metre sprint. This is not about a 10-second burst of energy, or perhaps it might take me 20 seconds. It's not about a 20-second burst of energy, maximum output for the shortest possible time. That's not the Christian life. We're on a long-distance journey. We need to be running a long, long way, and the way we do it is through consistent application Day by day by day by day. Building little by little by little by little. That's the Christian life. We need to hear the promises again and again. I hope you've heard them here this morning. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you, Father, for the life of Abram, the father of the faithful. 
Father, we pray that we would grow in faith and obedience. We pray, Father, that you would keep drawing us back to worship, back to the gospel, back to obedience to your will. Father, help us to serve you, to follow you and to be your people. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.